0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, we meet a 95-year-old woman who served with the Royal Navy. The fallout from Don Cherry's Coach's Corner Comments. And the West is telling the Prime Minister to giddy up when it comes to a Western plan. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, it is Remembrance Day all over, and uh, of course, here earlier on today, Bill Kelly uh, down at the Cenotaph at uh, Gore Park with the annual uh, ceremony that we do every single year, and uh, of course, uh, another. Uh, another moving ceremony this year. Uh, we want to introduce you to uh, Pamela McInerney. Uh She's 95 years old. She's from Burlington. She was a code breaker in the Women's Royal Navy Service and was posted at Alexandria, Egypt. To talk more, Pamela is with us now. Okay, Pamela, when did you join the uh, the service? How did you how did you become enlisted?
1: Well, I, I, I volunteered at the age of 17.
0: And what year was that?
1: Oh, goodness gracious me, don't ask me. Um, (laughs) Well, I was 15 when war broke out. Right. So that was 19, what, 1939?
0: And what made you you want to be a part of the war effort?
1: Well, it was, uh, I suppose, it was a very serious occasion and people wanted to do what they could. And uh, I've been associated with the sea for, you know, quite a while, and I like the sea, and so I decided I want to join the Navy.
0: And this was a time when not a lot of women were in service, correct? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So what was was that like, to be a pioneer for women back then? What was it like to be a woman in the Navy?
1: Well, it didn't occur to me it was odd at all. I mean, there were a good many of us then. Mm -hmm. A lot of people joined joining up, and uh, it was it didn't seem strange when you were in your early teens. You know, things come and go, and you just uh, accept them as they come.
0: (laughs) So talk to us about uh, finding out that you, you are in. What happened then? Talk about your deployment and where you went.
1: Well, I was spent the first nine months in my own home port. Mm -hmm. in Cornwall, and uh, they wanted volunteers in the Rens for overseas service. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So when I was 18, I volunteered, and uh, I was um, posted in Egypt, in Alexandria. And it uh, took us six weeks to zigzag our way from Goroch in Scotland, from where the convoy started, to get to South Africa, I was in the last convoy to go round the Cape and then waited for another ship to take us up to Egypt.
0: What was that convoy like? What was that journey like?
1: Well, it was, we actually had a problem. She was fairly old Canadian uh, Australasian line, the ship, very good sea ship, but she had a problem and had, we had to stay in, the, in uh, Gorok while the convoy sailed without us. We had to sail about a week later with a convoy, one destroyer, and a cargo ship. And uh, the the rest of the convoy was waiting for us in Freetown. We we joined the uh, convoy in Freetown and continued the trip to Durban, South Africa.
0: What was it like? What was the mood of the other people on this journey, the people you were traveling with?
1: I We were all just got along, you know. The, we were other ranks, so we didn't have anywhere to sit. We had to stand by the ship's rail all day.
2: Hmm.
1: And then the, the officers who had the A deck asked if a small section could be uh, given over for us to use and give them a chance to socialize. So for the rest of the trip, we sat on the deck all day except for meal times. Hmm. When we uh, went to the dining room, I had a rather ghastly meal of some sort.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So how long did it take you by ship? Six weeks. Six weeks.
1: Well, you see, in wartime, you don't sail straight to where you're going. Yeah. You zigzag all over the place. Yeah. In the hopes that you can avoid being uh, torpedoed.
0: Right. Did you ever have any sense during the journey of the danger involved?
1: No, we didn't. really. I don't think we think thought about it. We used to have um, uh, life-saving uh, drills every now and then. And then one day, the person next to me said twelve, and the petty officer taking the the uh, affair said, "Well, you don't have to be thirteen. We'll go straight to fourteen if you'd rather." <laughs> and I said, "Well, I think if I I think if a ship goes down, I'll not be the only one to go with it." So I'd be quite happy to be 13. (laughs) No problem.
0: (laughs) So what was your role? Okay, so uh, six weeks to get there. What was it like once you got there?
1: Well, then we had to spend another six weeks waiting for another ship to take us up to Egypt. Right. And uh, South Africa was a very unhappy country. You could sense it, if you have around you. But... um, but it was a very pleasant six weeks. We had wonderful food in a hotel and all sorts of things we hadn't had for a long time in England due to food rationing.
0: Right. So it was
1: a ple- very pleasant interlude.
0: So then six weeks later, you finally arrived at your destination.
1: Well, we got there and the ship was took us there, yes.
0: Yes. and what, And talk about your life there. What was it like and what was your role?
1: Well, I was uh, uh, in code and cipher, Mm -hmm. and when I got to Egypt, I was assigned to work on what was then a very secret machine, created from the work done at Bletchley Park, where they broke the German code. Right. And Bletchley Park was the birth of the computer, and the uh, one they devised there covered a wall with a huge thing. Mm hmm but then they needed portable versions that could be uh, put into any place that needed it. Needed right. one, not not all stations, of course, but those that were important enough to need one. And uh, it was an incredible machine. Incredible. When you finished doing what you had to do, it, it produced a plain language. And the coded version at the same time.
0: So, what was your role? To input the information into the machine?
1: Uh, well, no, it was, uh, we, we, no, we uh, was to use the machine. Right. The machine had two settings, one in numbers, the other in, fig- in letters. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a shallow drum on either side of the machine, out of which came a narrow strip of paper. On one side came the English version, on the on the other side the coded version. I worked out. Now imagine, imagine, imagine inventing that. Wow. So yeah. how
0: did you get into this line of work when you enlisted? When you volunteered?
1: I was assigned to it.
0: So they just picked you to do this. Any reason yes, why? Yes. Any idea why they picked you to do this?
1: No idea. I didn't. When I before I went to Egypt, I was working with the book codes. And uh, on one occasion, I was on duty, and a captain came in and said, get this signal off to this ship in this code. Right. And I looked at it, and I had to say to him, sir, she doesn't hold this code. He said, well, get it off in the code she does hold, which I did. I was 17.
0: That seems like an unbelievable responsibility for a young person just enlisted.
1: Well, you see, we were really um, thrust into almost instant adulthood, really. Yeah. When war broke out, there were none of the teenage activities that people have normally. Did well, you
0: realize? Well, did you realize the importance of the work that you were doing uh, with decoding these or helping to translate these coded messages?
1: I don't. I don't think so. Really, if it was something that we were assigned to do, and we did it. And I don't think we gave much thought to like, we didn't talk about the work we were doing.
0: Yeah did they, tell uh, you, did they tell you that you couldn't talk about the work that you were doing? Did they tell you that it was secret?
1: Well, codes and ciphers are, you know that, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, right, all yeah. about. And uh, So that I never discussed anything that I would know have information of ships that have been sunk and that sort of thing which might be announced a considerable time later.
0: Mm.
1: Well, i didn't originally when she'd gone down. Wow.
0: (laughs) Wow. What was it like for you? As a young person, did you process the importance of the information you were reading?
1: Not really. There was too much of it coming in. You know, you were busy all the time. And the thing was to get it done and had it over and... Get on with the next one.
0: And how many were doing the same tar- type of work that you were doing?
1: Well, we, we worked, two of us at a time, in a separate office, uh, right right just off the main signal office,
2: mm-hmm.
1: where the book coding was being done, because uh, our machines were, there wasn't a big fuss made about it, but they were highly, in those days, highly secret. Mind you, they're long since out of date now, of course.
0: Right, but basically they were intercepting enemy conversations in, in code, and you were decoding them.
1: Well, they were, they were, they broke the German code. Yeah. So they were able to to de- de- decipher the German code, and quite often, I think that the, the uh, in England they knew what. The German troops going to do before the German troops themselves knew what they were going to do. Wow. And uh, it was said that Bletchley Park shortened the war by two years and possibly by three.
0: Just through the information that they had known ahead of time?
1: Well, yes, because they were getting all the German signals mm-hmm. and uh, decoding them, you see.
0: Uh, d- how long did you do this job? How long were you involved with this?
1: Well, the whole time I was in Egypt was two and a half to three years.
0: Right. And how? Uh, what happened after three years? Two and a half, three years.
1: Well, then I went back to England.
0: And was that was that it for your military service?
1: My naval service.
0: <laughs> your na naval service. Sorry. Yes. Sorry.
1: No, I. I know I, that's
0: a sensitive issue. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yes. I mean, each service is very proud of.
0: Yes, service. absolutely, and rightly so, and rightly so. Um, so, when you look back, so was that it for your uh, for your naval service then? For those three years, was that it, or did you go back again?
1: Well, no, because when I got back to England, I was then posted elsewhere. Right. And in fact, they sent me to to. Um, no, oh, what was the name of the place, uh, up in Scotland,
2: mm-hmm.
1: on the Mull of Kintyre, the Atlantic tip of the Mull of Kintyre. Right. I nearly froze to death. <laughs> well, my bloody <brother> got too <laughs> thin you see, know, after all that time in Egypt.
0: Oh, that's it. You were spoiled with Egypt, maybe.
1: But, oh, yeah, absolutely. As far as weather was concerned, yes.
0: So what did you do in Scotland?
1: the same thing but i wasn't on yeah. type x right they didn't have type x there they didn't need it but um, i was there for several months i finished up with a few months to my own home port in fact mm-hmm. and then was discharged
0: so your sorry go ahead
1: v e day took place while i was still in egypt
0: right so your so your entire uh service was three years then is that accurate
1: no, my entire time in Egypt was two and a half to three years. Right. Well, I really done nine months, nine to ten months in England. Right. And I did several more months and I got back from Egypt. Right. In England.
0: So what happened after you were discharged?
1: Well, I had a holiday for a start. hmm A break. And then I did a secretarial college in London. And then I worked as a private secretary.
0: So, how old were you when you finished with the navy?
1: Oh, twenty-two. I was—I had my twenty-first birthday in Egypt. Mm. So I was twenty-two when I got back. Oh, I was twenty-two or twenty-three. I can't remember. That was a long time ago.
0: How did you celebrate your twenty-first birthday in Egypt? Do you remember?
1: I didn't. I couldn't.
0: You didn't, no.
1: I had no family there. There was no well way of uh, entertaining. You know, it was just the usual day.
0: What, when you look back now at uh, your time that you spent uh, all along this journey, what do you think about? What, what comes to mind?
1: Well, when I think about my time in the Navy? Yes. Oh, I've got so many memories. So many memories. One of the great um, <coughs> scenes I should never forget is we were sitting outside one morning, a bit on night duty... And the men were doing some cleaning up because the place was being used 24 hours around the clock. And uh, all of a sudden we realized that we were right on the water there. And uh, coming towards us were three English ships the Ajax, the Anson, and the Howe. Not the Ajax, the KG-5. Bringing in three Italian ships they had captured. Mm. And it was a magnificent sight. I said, never forget that.
0: What stood, what, what stood out? Why does that stand out for you?
1: Why did it what?
0: Why does that stand out for you? Why was it a magnificent night? What was, ex- Describe well, it, was
1: it for magnificent, us. It was a magnificent sight to see these yeah. three British warships bringing in the Italian ships they captured. Wow. A wonderful sight. And the Italians had a great time. They spent the rest of the time on board their ship. Sitting in Alex in Alexandria
0: Harbour.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they were very happy. <laughs> I'm
0: sure. So, um, what what do young people say to you when you tell their st- when you tell your story to them?
1: Well, I haven't told many young people.
0: <laughs> do you, you like know, share- can- do you like sharing your stories?
1: Oh yeah, I don't mind sharing my stories at all, but yeah you know, for the young today. The Second World War doesn't mean a great deal, really. Mm. Why should it? You know.
0: When you see what you've seen through the wars that you've experienced, what do you think about the world today and where we are?
1: I think it's appalling. Why? Well, everybody's fighting somebody about something. Yeah. Seems to me.
0: It seems that you know we're we've forgotten about those days that you're talking about. We've forgotten that.
1: Well, they're all easily forgotten, I guess, and of course now most people that went through that war yeah. have died anyway. I mean, I'm 95, mm.
2: <laughs>
1: and now anyone who was, and I was 15 when the war broke out. Now anyone who was in the early 20s is probably mm. not no longer with us at this point.
2: Mm.
1: But uh, no, I think it's very sad the state of. What with that and developing technology, which I think while well, being very helpful in some ways is highly dangerous in others. Mm. And the te- politicians ignoring climate change. Fascinating. It, it looks like a rather alarming future to me. But uh,
0: Did you think that perhaps we had solved all of these problems way back when? Are you surprised to see us still arguing or fighting or being divisive about things?
1: Do I think what? Do I think that
0: do you are you surprised that we're still as divided as we are today?
1: Uh, I don't know about things, I, of course I I, I feel that a lot of this trouble was started and caused by the American invasion of of, of Iran. Mm. Things have gone from from bad to worse since that happened, and I think that's very unfortunate. But. Uh, I don't know. Canada's in a bit of a state right now. England's in a terrible state. Germany mm. isn't much better off. And, and then, of course, we've got Trump land, which is a disaster. Yeah.
0: Well, Pamela, as uh, you know what, in the end, hopefully all things work out. Any advice for us as we move forward? Any advice for the next generation, Pamela?
1: Oh, let's all get on together and enjoy each other's company and appreciate the cultures and things of other countries and, and just enjoy it, you know, just. I mean, this, this business of this hockey coach complaining there's not enough Canadians are buying poppies. Well, there's no law that says you have to buy a poppy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Pamela, so I, thanks so much for the time. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your stories and have a great day. Uh, Thank you very much. All right. That is Pamela McCurney. And she was a codebreaker in the Women's Royal Navy Service and is a resident at Chartwell Retirement Residence in Burlington. And an incredible story. 17. 17. That's the age of my daughter uh, when she enlisted, when she volunteered. Unbelievable. Uh, Lest we forget. And thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson show podcast on 900 CHML. I am not one of the people jumping on Don Cherry. Um, uh, what he said, probably not the best choice of words, probably not the most accurate. If I was uh Ron McLean, instead of perhaps what appears to be throwing Don under the bus, uh, I would have perhaps have leaned in and said, is this just an observation of immigrants, Don? Because it seems that everybody, uh, you could say this about everybody, perhaps not wearing a poppy. And that is maybe how it should have been positioned uh, as far as the actual TV broadcast of it all. Uh, and instead, it's throw the guy out, ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. we are all hovering on uh, the words of... Uh, A 15-year-old climate activist, but if you're 85 years old and you speak your mind, you get booted to the curb. Uh, Here's what Don Cherry had to say. Here's a clip from uh, what happened on Coach's Corner.
2: Now
3: you go to the small cities, and you know you, you know those the roads and roads. You people love you—they you, come here, whatever it is. You love our way of life. You love our milk and honey. At least you could pay a couple of bucks for poppies or something like that.
0: These guys pay for your way of life that you enjoy in Canada. These guys paid the uh, the biggest price. All right, to talk more about all of this, uh, let's bring in Lindsay Broadhead, strategist, communications expert, Hill Knowlton Strategies, and is on the line with us now. Lindsay, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No, thanks for having me. Your thoughts on all of this from a uh, PR perspective. Uh, Could this have been said about anybody? Is it the fact that he zeroed in on immigrants, which has lit the fuse here?
3: Um, well, he certainly did zone in on immigrants. I mean, there was no uh, misunderstanding or misrepresenting his words. Uh, I think the the really interesting thing with uh, Don is he represents something to all of us, right? So I think this is where uh, the the fire is brewing, right? Like we just got out of an election cycle where um, there was a lot of discussion around. Uh, word usage as it relates to race and immigrants and all of that. So, you know, a lot of people are asking, well, hold on, why is everyone hot on Twitter now? Uh, and and uh, as you said, like, out for his head, whereas maybe before, in other circumstances, we had more latitude. So, I think it just comes down to Don has this incredible influence uh, for many different reasons um, that, that far outweighs maybe what he's aware of in his box.
0: Um how does that change things
3: what that he's unaware of who he is no and
0: no because of because of the the forum that he has and and yeah. and he's not aware of the uh, of the uh, impact that he has is that your point
3: well I mean long before we were inundated with social media and the views of the many right Don cherry has and he has had this lauded position of um, being among the voices of the few that we listen to. You know, I watched uh, hockey growing up, with, growing up with my dad, and I'd look forward to the first intermission, uh to hear him talk uh, on Coach's Corner. And it was, you know, we, we tuned in because he was controversial. You know, that's why in many ways we love him. So the question is, is like, what is he doing now? Um, that is a step too far. we've We've let him say so much over the years uh, and we trusted him. We trust him. But I think for a lot of people, what he said and the way in which he said it um, was a nudge too far.
0: So uh, what about his point and his his freedom to say, the, and and I'm not uh, I'm not condoning what he said I, I'm hmm. I'm just I'm really surprised at everybody's piling on an 85 year old man for speaking his right. mind um, and you're saying well it's because he has the platform that he does that's why people are piling on and to me that that doesn't justify it um, um, uh, but we I,
3: also can't remember that you know we're in an era right now where. The old 85-year-old white man, right, has been uh, allowed to do uh, any number of things. And I don't want to get on a soapbox, but I think, you know, this is a pattern we're seeing time and time again. And, you know, Sportsnet, bless them, right, they came out with an apology. Uh, And I think the whole notion of apology actually is a fantastic thing that we could talk about, too. But they came out with an apology that a lot of people criticized as being too thin. Um, You know, they they didn't really... um, action anything and and that's something that's critical in a lot of our crisis communications that we did they they offered a soft apology on behalf of someone uh, we haven't heard from uh from mr cherry at all um, and you know I, I think for a lot of people this is just more of the same right um because i understand your point of view about like you know should this be the hill that we want to die on? Uh, as it relates to all the things happening right now. But again, I think he's representing something here that's a, its a little bit bigger um, than than just that moment in time.
0: Explain to everybody what he said that was offensive.
3: Well, from Don's comments? Yes. Um, well, I mean, to quote back uh, the clip that you just had there, you know, you people, you come here, right? So right. even that language, right, right? He's creating an us and a them. Um he is the old white guy that we watch in a very white sport, right? Like, we have to call a spade a spade here. Um, he said, you know, you love our way of life. So mm-hmm. What he's saying inherently there is that you don't contribute to it, you people, right? Or you haven't contributed in the past. And we've seen a lot of coverage in the last 24, 48 hours. Is that what he now. said or is yeah. that
0: what we... And again, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Is yeah, that what yeah, he yeah. said or is that what we're reading into it? What Again, what he said was... Uh, He was upset that more people were not wearing poppies and then he zeroed in on the immigrant population as those people. Um, Is there anything wrong with saying that people don't wear poppies or even his opinion that immigrants don't wear poppies?
3: Um, No, I think probably, you know, collectively if you walk down the street it's probably a true observation that fewer people wear poppies. Right. Um, But that's not... That's not what he said. You know, he didn't say, let's all go out and support
0: and wear pompies, uh, the
3: veterans yeah. by buying poppies. Yeah, You know, he said...
0: He zeroed in on the immigrants to make that point.
3: Right. Well, and he said that it's because of what he implied, I think quite explicitly, um, is that um, the, uh, the immigrants are the cause for our disassociation with something that has been you know, firmly embedded in our culture through remembrance, say, and there's any number of reasons for why that may or may not be happening. Right. Um, so, you know, he, he he was very clear in what his accusation was. Um, and I think by virtue of the fact he also signaled out Mississauga and downtown Toronto uh, as the two locations also speaks to, you know, where diversity, our strengths may be living. So the fact that uh, what
0: he said, so the fact that what he said as you alluded to, could be true. That isn't the offense. The offense is how he said this. Um, well, I because think his observation was that people weren't wearing poppies, and then specifically immigrant population weren't wearing poppies. So it's that's not the issue. The issue is how he addressed this. How he one hundred percent, yeah,
3: one hundred percent. No one. I don't think anyone. I certainly haven't seen any commentary about. Um, critique over the lack of acknowledgement of Remembrance Day per se, right? He, he, he as I said, he, he honed in on a population that he kind of implicitly uh, connected to why our culture isn't connecting to the day, um, and it's because of increased popul- um, immigration,
0: so what about
3: that's where the, the problem
0: lies? What about Ron McLean's reaction to this? Because you know, I've right. often thought as I'm sitting through it, if I was Ron McLean, how I would react being in the media. And, and, and my first reaction when I heard him say what he was saying was, well, does that just include immigrants? Isn't that could you just not make that generalization if you look around, Not many people are wearing poppies as opposed to you know, zeroing in on why is it got, why is it an immigrant thing? Uh, talk about Ron McLean's reaction to this.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, from an apology point of view, right, uh, when you look at it through the, through a communications lens, uh, I think, frankly, his apology was very uh, uh, honest. It was delivered in a very Ron McLean kind of way. Um, you know, he, he used simple language. He was, you know, straight to camera. Um, he said, you know, uh, diversity is our strength in our country. He recognized hockey's role in it um he he even referenced like a first nations um um approach to uh kind of bridge building with communities and saying like i i know i've lost your trust i need to rebuild it like that was quite a you know it felt like quite a lot but that's how he felt um should ron i again in your intro you said that you know maybe ron was sort of dawn under the bus i'm not sure if you know, Ron was doing anything more than acknowledging his role. Um, and his role was just to be an observer and a listener. Yeah. Um, and again, this is a major, major scene in um, many parts of our Society right now, what the role of someone who's watching something bad happens is
0: yeah. And again, my first sports, yeah, right? my first reaction was, well, gee, why zero in on immigrants? Does couldn't you say this about everybody as opposed to just right. immigrants? So it would have been I interesting agree. to see. It would have been interesting to see where the conversation had gone from there.
3: Yeah, and I mean, Ron sometimes should be a little bit more, yeah. uh, you know, forthright. But that's his role a little bit as
0: to yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's very true. Um, do we care about what older people think anymore? Or only uh, when it really or know. only when it aligns with what we think.
3: Um, no, that's a really interesting question. I, because I, I, in other
0: cultures, we praise the elder, we embrace yeah. them more than what we do in our culture. We value their opinion and their knowledge more, even though they might not be as savvy technologically. Or, you know, or even political when it comes to something like political correctness. So how do you balance that? Do we do we not respect like everybody's jumping behind 15 year old Greta, the, the climate change uh, activist and and raising her like, you know, like a episode of the or like a scene out of the Lion King. And then we're kicking someone like a Don Cherry to the curb. Does that seem right?
3: Um, well, I, I guess that you know, every individual is different, right? Um, so, you know, I think there's great wisdom in, in, uh, older generations. I work in an environment where we have four generations within one, uh, one workforce, which is interesting sometimes. And sure. kind cool. of what I'm observing is, um, there is when you're, uh, the mutual respect goes two ways quite a bit, right? So, the 85-year-old, the you know, quote-unquote, is also listening quite a bit to the younger person um, who's bringing in any degree of knowledge into an environment that that 85-year-old can't bring. Uh, society's changing quite a bit right now, and I think the Greta's of the world have captured uh, the zeitgeist of younger, younger generations in the same way it did in the 60s, and, and I'm sure it'll happen uh, forever more, Um you know, there has to be some kind of mutual respect that's happening. Uh, I, you know, I, Don Cherry is, is Don Cherry. He'll forever be Don Cherry. Um, but he's got to start to listen and uh, be a little bit more aware of actually who his audience is, because it's perhaps not the same audience that he had back in the 70s and 80s.
0: Are we more concerned as a country, as a society, over Don Cherry's comments of poppies? or a Prime Minister's image in black or brown face?
3: Sorry, are we more concerned? Yeah.
0: Um, Are we more concerned about what Don Cherry said than we are about what the Prime Minister had done?
3: uh, Maybe. Uh, And uh, I think that's also for a number of reasons, but go full circle to where where I started. I think Don Cherry has had this really unique position as an influencer well before his years. Um, uh, You know, we do not, as a society... Trust politicians very much anymore. We don't need to trust science a lot anymore, right? It's There's some yeah, things yeah. that we don't trust. <laughs> but we trust people who we've listened to for a long time, and I think Don had that role, right? Um, so that's why I was saying before, he's, he's held this very unique spot within Canadian society, and it's clear that he, he bumped it just a little too far. Um, Should we care about Trudeau's role with blackface more? A hundred percent.
0: It just seems Uh, that we're more upset about this than we are about that. I don't see too many people coming to Don Cherry's defense today. Whereas way back uh, when I saw half the people hating blackface and brownface and the other half defending uh, the prime minister.
3: I think Trudeau was successful in clearly delineating, right or wrong, I'm not judging, but clearly delineating what happened in the past with who he is now. And also, I don't think, right or wrong, anyone thought that his behavior was racist, per se, in terms of his intentions. I think what they saw is an entitled young man doing a really stupid thing over and over again. But I'm not sure if Canadians believe that his actions were motivated by racism. Whereas with Don Cherry, it's hard to not think that they were motivated by racism. That's a pretty Um,
0: fine line that people might debate you to the cows come home on that one. Don't you think?
3: Absolutely, and yeah, no. And and I realize it's it's problematic because. Uh, Trudeau's action is it far, problematic far, or far, is, it far, is it a double? Adorable?
0: Is it problematic or is it a double standard? Uh,
3: well, I don't think it's a double standard between the young and and the old. You know, I don't think that's the that's the line. Um, I, I'm not sure if we look to the people in our lives that we trust, um, the Don Cherrys, etc. With the same degree of expectation that we do our prime minister.
0: Sometimes. Well, that's what seems. That's, that's what yeah. That's what seems very odd to me. Is at the end of the yeah. day, the prime minister. You know, and what we just said about comparing the two incidents, the prime minister uh, wields a lot more power and influence than a guy that's on once a week and in, in in blabs about hockey. And as you said, mm-hmm. we all know what Don Cherry's about. He's an eighty-five year old man who's got an opinion. So it mm-hmm. seems to me unfair that we're chastising him the way we are. And, and you know, and, and maybe that's well-deserved. But yet, when it comes to someone who's ruling a nation, we didn't seem to care after a couple of days about the whole blackface-brownface incidents. But people
3: speak and respond to the things they care about, right? So... Uh, it's not about what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. It's, uh, from my point of view, it's
0: completely no, here, yeah. an
3: objective observation mm-hmm. about, yeah. um, you know, he, he's talking about hockey. He's talking about the whiteness of hockey. He's talking about how to remember and who should be remembering
0: in what way. You know, we've heard apologies over. See again, the you know, even he to say things, he's talking right? about the whiteness of hockey. I don't know. Yeah. That's to me. That's. Well, it sounds like to me like he's upset with people who aren't wearing poppies. But I understand what you're saying. But 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 to construct that message out of it, I, I don't know. I, no, I, it's not that he's talking about it.
3: What I'm saying is that's what's important to the people who are commenting on yeah, it, yeah. right? Like when we when we saw the Raptors win and do the victory march, we saw. Men and women, we saw mm-hmm. every color of skin under the rainbow, all ages. Um, and that, that's because that sport is accessible, right, from a financial point of view. You can do it anywhere.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
3: all year long. Hockey's really inaccessible. So by definition, you know, there, there is uh, an elitism to it. So all, what
0: But that's not, reading, to that's not what, reading too much to get to the conclusion that we're getting on Don Cherry, or is it just hip to pile on people like Don Cherry now?
3: I th- no, 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 not at all. I think it's about what he represents. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's not, quote-unquote, fair to lay all of that on him, mm-hmm. right? But what people are commenting on is what his comments mean to our society. Uh, and and what, um, what we can extrapolate from everyone's passion about the issue is that what he said is evoking a whole bunch more deep-seated uh, thinking Uh, about people of all ages and across all political sites, uh, races, etc.
0: It's fascinating, the discussion it started, and hopefully in the end we'll all learn something from this. Lindsay Broadhead has been with his strategic communications expert, Hill Knowlton Strategies. Lindsay, fascinating discussion. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
3: Thanks so much, Scott. Take care.
0: You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Conservative MPs warning that uh, that Trudeau should giddy up if he wants to solve the problems with the West. We'll talk about this and all things political. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. Uh, And this coming from the West, uh, Michelle Rempel, uh, MP for Calgary, has said, uh, quote, Justin Trudeau has not come close to seeing the force of three million mobilized Albertans actively opposing his uh, policies and actively showing the country the consequences of a unity crisis. So my message to him is giddy up. Uh, Surprised we haven't heard more from the prime minister on this post-election, considering where we are with Alberta and the divisiveness in the country.
4: I think we will, though, gradually over time. You're right, I would have expected a little bit more of myself because Trudeau can't help himself but to get involved in these messes. However, I think since the blackface-brownface controversy, I'm sure a lot of the people around him have probably told him to cool his jets to some extent. Look, he's not entered, for example, the Don Cherry debate at all. He said nothing. and yeah, I think that's good point. Because people have him, on, yeah, they have him on a leash and they're basically telling him, You've got to control yourself, and there just may be points in time where Trudeau, because of his past history, will not be able to get involved as much as he wants to, or he's, that he's chomping at the bit for, in terms of issues like that. Now, in terms of <clears throat> Western alienation or and or Western separatism, the the latter being a smaller movement, but it's still around, obviously... Uh, he's going to have to eventually comment on Wexit, or which is the Western ex- equivalent of Brexit, as we see in the UK, because it's a major issue, and it's going to keep growing. I mean, naturally, Alberta's not going to separate from the country. It's landlocked. There's nowhere for it to go. Mm-hmm. But it could. Be, but what, as uh, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney has suggested, there are certain things provincially you know, from taxes, government policies, carbon tax, etc., that they can handle on their own, and they should have the right to. If you believe that the provinces have unique rights, and the pendulum has swung both ways in terms of whether the feds of the provinces have control over their own affairs, taking Section 91 and 92 of the Constitution Act out of the equation, a lot of provinces believe today that they have much more authority and a greater understanding of what their residents want, of what the province needs, and what the economy can withstand. For that reason, Jason Kenney and others are able to, I think, rally a lot of people in the province to their cause. And I don't think what, anything he said that was actually wrong. I think was actually brilliant because he actually waltzed away from Western alienation and basically just says that Alberta can take care of their own affairs. Thank you very much i don't Uh, think there's anything wrong with that at all
0: uh as you mentioned uh jason kenney seeking more autonomy for the province a direction similar to what quebec has taken in the past can alberta go and knock on the door of the government and say we want what they got
4: they could you know it's amazing to believe that most provinces have never gone near that avenue Hmm. basically sort of just left quebec alone in that mantra And I'm not saying that there haven't been you know, little movements or bursts that have happened in Alberta, B.C., Saskatchewan, elsewhere, or Manitoba, too. They've all happened in each of the provinces. But generally speaking, they've only lasted for a short little while, and then they just sink. We have seen it, obviously, in the past in Alberta with the, well, the Western Canada concept and other parties who touted Western separatism. But generally speaking, that's boiled over. However, based on what's happening here, and based on the fact that the federal liberal government has no seats in alberta and no seats in saskatchewan that actually for the <clears throat> pardon me for the western provinces gives them a reason to be very very concerned about their rights and their economies and their survival on a day-to-day basis so yeah it is something that the federal liberals are going to have to deal with and while they claim they're going to <laughs> it's going to be very hard to do so trying to attempt to bring in, say, Calgary Mayor Nahi Nenshi into the debate, or Alison Redford, who, you know, a failed premier of Alberta, you know, for them, that's probably fantastic, because they have either progressive-leaning politicians, Nenshi, or progressive-leaning conservatives, if you want to call Redford that, even though I find that a bit debatable, but we'll put her in that category. Those are the sorts of people that they could bring to the table to help out either formally or informally. But they don't represent Western values by any means. No matter what position Nenshi holds right now, or what Redford's position was formerly, they don't represent Western values. And for that reason, it gives people, well, say like Andrew Shear and the Tories, a greater ability or an increased ability, enhanced anyway, to actually now work with Alberta, Saskatchewan, and other provinces where they have. Large amounts of representation and continue to build their association there, while at the same time trying to increase their standing in Ontario and elsewhere. So, I mean, for it's it's not the perfect or ideal situation for Sheer or whoever one day leads the Tories, whether it's him for a few more years or others, but it's at least a a way to rebuild the party. Being step one, this recent federal election, step two might be trying to work with the West, building support there, and working with Eastern conservatives, because there are a lot of them, and trying to rebuild that unity project. So if Trudeau doesn't deal with it and deal with it properly, he's left a huge door open for Sheer and the Tories to rebuild.
0: Uh, all this talk of Western alienation and and possible separation surprised that British Columbians came out and said, "Hey, this isn't our fight. This is Alberta's. Uh, we're yeah. we're part of the West, but we're not with them." It, it seems yeah, that it's the- gone beyond region to just province now.
4: Yes, no, I agree with you absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, the battle has always been province by province, and obviously. You know, if you look at the last federal election, we are, we're sort of looking at an element that's very, very similar to the pizza parliament we saw in 1993, if you vaguely remember that, Scott, where you had the Bloc Quebecois who were larger, although they've grown again here. You had, the, you had the old Reform Party in certain areas. You had the Liberals in certain areas. And the uh, federal PCs, if we remember that old party, were down to two seats and had absolutely no influence. We're seeing a bit of a, a similarity to it here as well, just based on the fact that, I think, that Shear and the Tories now have uh, most of their concentration in the West, some viability in the East, and they need to rebuild it. Uh, Justin Trudeau and the Liberals had basically come an Eastern bloc party of sorts, where the main protagonist is in Ontario, but elsewhere, you know, it just unfortunately works into difficulty for him, other than Atlantic Canada. And then basically... And then basically, uh, you're looking at a scenario where everybody else is kind of fighting for for the middle or whatever's left over, and it's going to be very very hard to do.
0: Uh, interesting comment coming out of Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister in regard to his meeting with uh, the Prime Minister, which I guess has already happened on Friday. Uh, and he said, quote, fighting climate change is a unifying project. A political, leader, a political leader can divide. A prime minister should unite. So as we move forward, we should unite around fighting climate change, and we should not get caught up in a subset of a subset. Carbon tax is not the only way to deal with climate change. Right. Uh, does the prime minister need to open up his mind instead of just preaching to people? Sure.
4: Well, I mean, people have been saying that to him for quite a while, and I would even be surprised if his own advisors weren't saying it too, Scott. But at the same time, this prime minister just has believed up until very recently that he walked on water, that he could basically control the narrative, do what he wanted policy-wise, and become a success on his own. He really felt, I think at some point in time, that he was invincible. And look, I mean, if he had learned his lessons from history, he would have looked to his late father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who had a huge majority in 1968 and fell to a minority in 72 because, surprise, surprise, Canadians felt he was not directing things in the right way. Now, sure, his dad recovered and obviously served several more terms. If Justin Trudeau doesn't learn a little bit from that, well, he's going to be in big trouble. And interestingly, uh, Brian Pallister, the Premier of Manitoba, has opened the door for him a little bit to think about how to implement something like a carbon tax how to implement various policies for the Liberals going forward, and how you can actually work with the Western provinces or the prairies in general to make things more beneficial and more profitable and more successful in Canada. So he actually owes Pallister a a debt of gratitude for at least introducing that, if nothing else, it's now just a question of whether Trudeau wants to follow it or not.
0: So can something, Michael, that has been so divisive for the country, uh, i.e. the cli- uh, the climate change issue and pipelines and Alberta's en- energy industry, can climate change go from being the most divisive topic in the country to the most uniting? Is this a unifying opportunity we're missing?
4: Well, I don't think it is. What, I, what, what Pallister has suggested is there's a way to at least work together towards certain goals while recognizing that a lot of provincial parties, most of them conservative-leaning or right-leaning if you wish, and the federal liberals are just not going to see eye-to-eye on the issue. You know, as it's been suggested, even Trudeau has said said it as well, and some senior liberals, you know, you can build the Trans Mountain pipeline, fight for the carbon tax, and do it all differently. And in the end, that ultimately may be the way it's going to happen. I certainly don't think the carbon tax is going to become a unifier or climate change in general, just because conservatives and liberals, by and large, have very, very different differences of opinion when it comes to what the right direction should be, whether the government should be more involved, whether the private sector should be more involved, whether the levels that everyone's touting, including the United Nations and elsewhere, are are accurate. And whether it's, you know, for some people, whether it's a huge threat, others believe it's a major threat, there are just too many ideas right now in this little bowl, if you wish, and I don't think everyone's going to be united behind it one way or the other. It's just a question of whether you can find a little bit of common ground to have the situation, say, be less volatile and more productive, rather than, well, probably another period, depending on how long this minority government lasts in Ottawa, from even more volatility and possibly more court cases related to the carbon tax and more issues and problems with Ontario, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and others who are opposing it. Does, so it's really open-ended right now.
0: Does um, Does the Prime Minister hope that this just settles down, or does he understand there has to be some sort of concrete action to keep Alberta happy?
4: see, that's a tough one for me to answer, and that's simply because I'm not a liberal and I'm not part of that war room. I don't know what they're thinking. If we look at the rhetoric, which is, I guess, the easiest, of previously of the prime minister, that being Justin Trudeau, some of his senior ministers, and we'll call them ministers for now because, obviously, he's shuffling his cabinet as of November 20th, or just liberals, say, in the media, on social media and elsewhere— I don't know if they really see it that way. There is an element of the Liberal Party that recognizes there needs to be some form of unity or nothing's going to get done, but there's also an enormous amount of, or a huge element of divisiveness that exists that I don't think was necessarily as visible years ago, or if it was, it was more well-hidden, and I think that actually, you know, just a sidetrack for a minute, I think that's a big problem that we have with politics in general, and I'm sure you've discussed it as well, sort of the give and take of politics or the way that basically you build political bridges and try to find unity. it just doesn't exist as much Mm -hmm. anymore. If anything, the tone has just become nastier and more divisive. So for that reason, I don't know, it's all a good question as to what's going to happen, but it's all up to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. He's the one in control of the situation. He's got to make that decision. He's got to make the final call with his advisors as to what they're going to do.
0: Michael Tobe has been with us. Troy Media, syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a great day.